Oh Lord, how many are our foes? Many problems, many trials rise against us. We can, we can hear them say, these Christians have no salvation. Their sin is too great. Their God, a myth. But you, O oh Lord, are a supernatural shield about us. You are glorious. We do not lift our own heads boastfully. We wait for you. You lift our weary heads, and we boast in you. We cry aloud to you, and we know you'll respond. You have already answered us from the hill where Jesus died. When we slept last night and our eyes opened this morning, we know it's because you did not sleep at all. You again chose to sustain our lives for this day. So we will not be afraid of many thousands who have set themselves against you and against us, your people. Arise, O Lord. Help us to flee sin like our lives depended on it, because our lives do depend on it. Put a wide margin of space between us and evil. Get it as far away from us as possible. Cause our lives to flourish in prayer and devotion to you. Lord, please break the teeth of prayerlessness in our lives. Knock the wind out of our excuses to not pray. All honor and glory and power belongs to you. You are the author of salvation. Bless us this morning as we seek the good of others. Amen. All right, well, uh, good morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 3. We're going to be in Psalm 3 today. Whenever I have the opportunity to preach, uh, I will be preaching through the Psalms, so I'll be very predictable. If you ever see me up here again, I'll be preaching on Psalms 4. Um, all right. While you're turning there, uh, let, let's just do a, a simple kind of recap, right? Psalm chapter one and two, we see this beautiful ideal coming together. We have God's law, God's perfect law, and then we have God's king, okay? And the, these two uh, agents of God, God uses his chosen servant to bless God's people and then, and then on into the world. This is what Israel was to do. What we see in Psalm one and two is how things should go. But then what we see in Psalm 3 until Psalm 150, right, is how things actually go. Psalm 1 and 2 is what Israel should have been. It's what they could have been. And Psalm 3 and on, onward is what Israel was. What we're talking about here is expectations versus reality, right? The, the good, the true, the beautiful versus what, it, what is all just too painfully real. Okay, you, you see a commercial for this buy one, get one free double cheeseburger, it's awesome, right? You rush out to the, to the store, you, you bring it home, and, and then what, what is it? All signs point to danger, right? Like ketchup and mustard are like bleeding forth from the wrapper. You know, it's not two patties. It's just one patty, like cut down the middle. Uh, reality sets in, right? There, there is no archetypal burger. It's just not going to happen. Uh, there, there are memes out there. Have you seen the memes where there's like expectations and then reality or something like that? It's expectations, reality. So on the, one, on the one side, there's one of these where the expectation side has this like cute little baby uh, smushed in an, in an empty pumpkin. The, the feet are popped out of the little uh, cutouts that they made in the pumpkin and laughing, giggling, right? And there's fall leaves in the background. And it's, just, it's just precious, right? And the other side is reality. And, and it's this little, this little poor little baby somehow like wedged into a slimy, gooey pumpkin, screaming, crying, 
like its foot is all janky and it's like halfway out of the little cutout. Like it's just, it's just bad. It's whenever we try to do the thing, right? Try to match the pitch, picture. It doesn't, it doesn't go well. There, there are certain expectations we have and then there's just real life. In Psalm 3, we find David facing the reality of his kingship in a sinful world. This is a reality psalm. In this psalm, David is overwhelmed, but he's fearless and he is for God's people. David is overwhelmed. David is fearless. David is for God's people. David was outnumbered and on the run. Psalm chapter three, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. This is our first stop in the text, okay? Uh, we, we see certain headings appear in most of the Psalms. We, we have kind of a weird word for it. It's called a superscription, okay? Uh, a professor in seminary beat this drum over and over again and into me and the other students, right? Like read the superscriptions. It, this is a part of your Bible. Read them. Superscription just means something written or engraved on the surface or above something else. And these words appear in Hebrew manuscripts, in our Bibles, we see it begin right above verse one, a Psalm of David when he fled from his son. Okay, now, now chances are likely you have a version of the Bible that has a superscription to a superscription. Okay, it's like the, the office show, like assistant to the assistant regional manager, right? There's a superscription to the superscription. The NIV doesn't have one, but the ESV says, save me my God. The ESV translators put that above uh, the superscription and verse one, and then the RSV has trust in God under adversity. Okay, these headings above are not inspired by the Spirit, but the superscriptions beneath them are inspired by the Spirit. Confused yet? Okay, uh, all right. It might have just been easier for for us non-Hebrew scholars if the English translators of the Bible had just included the superscription within verse one. Okay, it might have been easier, but I. I'm not a Bible translator and, and nobody asked me. So there, there you go, right? Just read the superscriptions, okay? In Psalm 3, David has been king for a long time. Don't, don't think of the Psalms. Don't think of Psalm 3 as happening uh, chronologically, okay? The Psalter is not trying to be an ordered history book. David is running it for his life for what? For a second time. <laughs> Once before he was king, he fled from King Saul. And now years later, during his kingship, his own son, Absalom, He's out to kill him and claim the throne. So talk about expectations and reality, right? Right? You're like, you're eating grapes on your throne, you know. Just, I'm just really looking forward to the day where I get to teach my son how to drive, drive my chariot, you know. And all the while your kid is thinking like, man, do I, do I hit dad with his chariot or do I use my mom's? Hey, expectations versus reality. Like how did, how did we even get to this superscription? This is the start of the Psalms. David is fleeing for his life. We're not talking about getting let go or, or getting terminated from a job. Absalom is speeding toward David to terminate his life. Now you can read, you can go home and read uh, 2 Samuel 15 through 18. It's going to tell you all about this, right? You're going to get the full picture there. But the, the brief version of it is this, okay? The background, the simple background to it is this, and it's a terrible one, right? Absalom's sister Tamar was raped. Their dad, King David, did not do anything about it. So Absalom went vigilante. He took justice into his own hands and he killed the rapist, okay? Who, who was it? Well, it happened to be his brother, Amnon, okay? It's an awful story. Absalom then flees the capital, 
but is eventually brought back. Years later, he's brought back and, and he's not punished by David. But it's here in Israel where for years Absalom plots and leads a revolt against God's anointed king. It wasn't enough to get justice uh, for, his, for his sister's uh, attack, her rape. It was, he, he wanted more. And so Psalm 3 meets us and meets David mid-revolt, okay? 2 Samuel tells us that King David and his court fled on, on foot. And they didn't just flee on foot, they, they fled barefoot. They were running, hiking, and just weeping into exile. You know, I've heard other people speak on, on this passage or, or other books like, like Judges, and they'll, they'll say, yeah, you know, it's, it's, like, uh, it's like Game of Thrones or Days of Our Lives in here, right? They'll, they'll say things like that. But the, the issue with that is that it's far worse. It is far worse than that because these things actually happened to these people. Tamar was actually raped by her own half-brother, Amnon. This is exponentially depraved wickedness. Sin breeds sin. Like, like David's past combination of, of adultery and assassination, like father, like sons. Amnon lusts, Absalom kills. Sin breeds sin. Though forgiven by God, now, now King David is cast down from his kingdom. Psalm 3, verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. David is running for his life. He's running out of options. He's the opposition closing in on him, and he is, he is overwhelmed. And in the core of who he is, they're saying of his soul, the core of who he is, is under attack. His enemies verbally attacked his identity, not just as an image bearer, but as God's chosen king. This is, this is not just a, you're a lost soul kind of mocking. This is a, a full spectrum taunt, both body and soul, the, the core of what made David, David. When his enemies say there's no salvation for David, this word salvation, this word deliverance, it refers to removing restriction. It refers to providing room or space. So we see this word two other times in the psalm. The, the second spot is in verse seven, where David says, arise, O Lord, save me, deliver me, rescue me. In verse eight, he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. And this, this word, salvation, is commonly used in the Bible. It's over a hundred times in the Psalms, hundreds of more times in the Old Testament. It's where the, the name Jesus is derived from, okay? When, when, when someone is delivered from danger, what, what do we say happens, right? At its most basic level, there's space made between them and the threat. So deliverance is. There's, there's space that is made between them and the threat. When, when we are overwhelmed in our lives and we don't see deliverance coming, we, we feel like we're running out of space, don't we? Right? There, there's a tightness of chest. We, we are oppressed from the inside and out. We, we feel hemmed in by our own desperation, maybe our own sinful desires. It, it feels like there's this suffocating atmosphere of restriction around our body. Our defenses are up 24-7. Our minds are, are anxiously overactive. And there's no space left between us and our problems that, that we can even catch a breath. Okay? We, don't, we don't know where we end and our problems begin. It's just bad. And David's enemies are saying, that God is done making room for David. 
Perhaps they recalled their last king, okay? Probably what I would have done. King Saul disobeyed God, and so what happened? God's spirit left Saul. Shortly after this, what did Saul do? He was in a battle. Saul killed himself by falling on his sword. He died overwhelmed and undelivered by God. David disobeyed God too. His enemies think he's too far gone. We've seen, this, we've seen the likes of this before. David's our second king. And just like our last one, he's too far gone. David might as well have fathered doom itself because, because death is now coming for him by his own son's hand. Of, of this statement, where his enemies say there's no salvation in God, Charles Spurgeon said this. He said of, of this statement, there's no salvation in God. If all the trials which come from heaven, all the temptations which ascend from hell, and all the crosses which arise from earth could be mixed, pressed together, they would not make a trial so terrible as what we see in this verse. It is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. Chances are, chances are likely, chances are good, that if you're listening to this, you, you've known what it's like to feel beyond salvation's reach. Maybe, maybe now you feel hopelessly beyond the reach of God's help. Those who have actually had to run for their lives, um, how do they describe it? They, they can't move their legs fast enough. But those, those of us who feel like we're internally running for our lives, like we can't slow our minds down fast enough. Instead of a, a steady jog, the stress and anxiety we face in the race of life, what does it do? It causes our minds to move at a dead sprint. Our bodies ask for a break, but our minds dash into the future with, with no intention of slowing down. We enter bed, what? Restless. We wake up, we try again. Start the day in tranquility, maybe. Maybe over the word, uh, a quiet devotion, cup of coffee, cup of tea, just peace and quiet in the home. And then, and then before we know it, the day just, it, it gets a head start on us. It jumps out in front of us. The teeth of life start, start rearing their ugly fangs. Reality smacks our expectations on the cheek. Right, we're, we're late for work again. The kids are fighting again. We disappoint others. Others disappoint us. We, we can't hold it together. We, we feel panicky, or we do panic. Our minds race. I feel surrounded by my many problems. It, it's like I, I've got this snake of anxiety wrapped around my soul. I'm getting choked out. I've got no space between me and my problems, no breathing room. I'm overwhelmed. Many are my foes. Many are rising against me. And then it, then it leads to what kind of question? For, for some of us, right? Am I beyond deliverance? Am I beyond deliverance? It's our first application. Christian, journal alongside the company of the overwhelmed. When life overwhelms, you realize that you are in fact in good company. David is now on the second run for his life. First Saul, now his own son. What did Elijah have to do? Elijah ran from Ahab and Jezebel overwhelmed, he prays to God. We have this in the Bible. He prays to God, God, let me die. <laughs> I'm overwhelmed. The apostle Paul, sure he was overwhelmed, shipwrecked, scourged, imprisoned for Christ. Jesus was overwhelmed in the garden, sweating blood as his betrayer and his many foes rose up against him. He's overwhelmed at his trial 
abandoned, mocked, flogged before his crucifixion. So what's the point? What's the point here? The point is this. The absolute worst things which anyone could say against the Lord and against his people have already been written down in the Bible. There's no salvation for you. You think God told you that he would give you eternal life? If God really loves you, then, then why is he letting your life turn out like this? Why hasn't the Lord helped your family when they needed it the most? These, these things and more are already in God's word. The worst insinuations, the worst insults, which anyone could say against the Lord and against his people have already been written down in the Bible. The saints, Psalm 3 was written for our example. It was written for our instruction. Write down your fears. Journal along with the company of the overwhelmed and, and do not hold back a thing. We, we've already seen the worst that can be thrown at us. Write and pray, God, I'm, I'm anxious. My heart is about to beat out of my chest, but I'm in good company. My flesh is telling me that I am beyond your deliverance, Lord, but in you, I see that I'm in good company. You're the only deliverer. Help me to trust you. So God's deliverance is, is here. God's deliverance is clear. Whether it was yesterday or years ago, if you follow Jesus, God has delivered you. You know this, Christian. God has delivered you from sin's penalty and power, which, which is way better than catching a break from the painful realities of life. There's simply no comparison. There's no comparison. Suffering in hell for sin does not compare with the temporary suffering on earth for the gospel's sake. Non-Christian, join, join this company of the overwhelmed. God's deliverance is clear. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we want you to know that, that for our sake, Jesus willingly chose not to be delivered from evil. Rather, he was delivered into the hands of sinners like you and like me. He chose each moment to suffer the full weight of God's wrath on the cross until there was no breathing room left in his lungs. The Bible is not a book that gives us empty promises which just pacify us or make us feel okay. When you're living outside of God's grace, you've got a real problem on your hands. There's only one way out. You can either live overwhelmed in your own company and suffer hell for it, or you can find deliverance from all your guilty fears at the cross. So, so today, like David just fled from danger on foot to survive, if you would flee from your sinful life of opposition to God and trust that Jesus' death paid for your sins, God promises to deliver you. He promises this in his word. He says he will create space between you and your sins what? As far as the east is from the west. David is overwhelmed. David is fearless. His faith in God made him fearless. Psalm 3, verses 3 through 6. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept, and I woke again. For the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me. David is outnumbered, he's overwhelmed, but his faith in God makes him fearless. This word, this word shield, as David uses it, it's not like a physical shield that you would hold 
onto. Okay, it's it's more akin to like a like a sci-fi movie or show where they have like invisible shields right around like the spaceships or around your yourself. Okay, I won't go into further depth because then I would just sound like a total nerd, right? Like I know the na- one of the shields names like the Holtzman shield, right? I know this somehow. It's not good. Okay, but David said, "You are a shield about me, a shield around me." Not just, not just to hold out in front to like deflect uh, blows from, from an enemy or arrows, but a 360-degree perimeter, all-encompassing around me. The shield surrounding David, it, it sounds kind of unconventional for the time, but, but it wasn't out of poetic left field, right? Many have pointed out that David had Genesis 15 in mind when he used the word shield, how was that? Well, David studied his Bible, right? He was a theologian. He studied his Bible. He tried applying the Bible to his day-to-day life, just like, just like you and I try to do this. And he read in Genesis, he read this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Then God explains to Abram that he will be the father of many nations and that kings, even kings, will come from Abram. Then Years later, pass by, we get David, right? And that's just what God did. That's what God did for Abram. Impossibly, God made old fatherless Abraham the father of many nations. In Psalm 3, David, who is a descendant of Abraham and one of the kings, he, he remembers God's shield promise to Abram. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Fear not, David, I am your shield. You, O Lord, are my glory. David says, you, O Lord, are my glory. This word, this word glory means heavy, means heavy. In reference to God, glory has to do with God's overwhelming presence. It was the weight of God's glory that crushed the Egyptian army at the Red Sea. It was God's glory on Mount Sinai that caused Israel to what? Fear and tremble and worship. David is overwhelmed by as many foes. So what does he do? He prays to God whose presence overwhelms the overwhelming. Verse 4, David prays out loud to God. Psalm 3, which is the first prayer in the Psalter, teaches us that that expectations for speaking to God look, look less like staying silent, stoic in our Sunday best before the Lord. And in reality, what do they look like? It looks like speaking the mess of our lives to the Lord. That often lacks refinement and grace. Crying out before the Lord is, is not a pretty picture. Prayers prayed in the real world are not glitzy or regal. Real prayer cries out to God. And we pray, we pray because like David, we're outnumbered. We pray because we need to be overwhelmed by God's presence and underwhelmed by the problems that outnumber us. David cries out and then says, God answered me from his holy hill. God answered David from his holy hill. How how did David have confidence that God actually answered him? Where is this confidence coming from? Well, God's holy hill has already appeared in the previous Psalm, Psalm chapter two, where God establishes his king. It says this, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And what did Israel's king do? Israel's king was to bring divine blessing to God's people and then on to the rest of the world, through the law of God. That was, that was the expectation. And then Psalm 3 hits us with reality. The, though faced with the harsh reality of, of Absalom's intent to kill him, King, King David doesn't throw up his hands and go, well, I, 
The Israel's kingly project, like that's a bust. That's not gonna work. I'll, I guess I'll look for some, something else somewhere else. No, he reminds himself that God has spoken from his holy hill. A moment ago, we briefly read Genesis 15, where God tells Abram what? He'll be a shield to Abram. He will give him a great reward. The narrative picks up. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. The Lord brought him outside and said, Abram, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. God then goes on to guarantee this to Abram through, through what is called a covenant that signifies to Abram, Abram, even if you break your end of the deal, I'm not gonna break mine. I will, I will uphold my covenant even if you don't uphold your end. Later in chapter 17, God gives Abram a new name, Abraham, and he says this, I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Many generations later, God's covenant with Abraham continued on until when? To where we are now in the text, until the time of David, one of Abram's distant grandchildren. And the Bible tells us that God makes a specific promise, a covenant with David, that David's kingdom will last forever. So, so I, I say this, all this to say that in David's time, this covenant between Abram and God, this covenant between David and God, it was kept where? In the Ark of the, what? The covenant, right? And that was where? On God's holy hill. The Ark of the Covenant was the symbol of God's earthly throne. David is appealing to the promises of not Abraham only, but also to him, to David. It's like David saying, God, I'm reading my Bible here where you made a covenant with my ancestor Abraham you, and you've made a promise to me. And I know you are gracious and I know you will answer me. Your covenant set on your holy hill confirms this. I know your character. And so I know you'll keep your end of the deal. You will keep your promise. You will keep your covenant, even though I haven't always kept mine. Verse five and six. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Now Absalom didn't have a thousand people out looking for David, right? He had quite a few, but not a thousand. Uh, this word could signify not just a thousand, it could signify like up to 10,000, okay? David is saying, I will not be afraid even if a multitude shows up. Hundreds, thousands of enemies show up here because the Lord is the true sustainer of my life. So when I lay down, I'm going to sleep and I'm going to wake up again as long as the Lord ordains. A lot of people who experience fear, worry, anxiety, what do they have a hard time doing? Sleeping, right? They have a hard time sleeping at night. They're restless. Their mind's, their mind's wheels just turn late into the night. Instead of, instead of having space between them and their myriad of problems and a good night's rest, they count and recount the many thousands of things they fear, the many thousands of foes against them. But, but confidence in God can change all of that. David is able to express full confidence in God. He says this, Fear not, David, I am your shield and your glorious reward. 
In 2 Samuel 7, God promised to David, my steadfast love will not depart from you as I took it from Saul. Instead, David, your throne will be established forever. So even though he's on the run, David prayed God's promises on the basis of God's character. It, it took the, Jesus tells us the story of the prodigal, right? It took the prodigal son returning to his father's home, what, humbled, empty-handed in order to find deliverance. It's interesting, it took prodigal David returning to life on the run, humbled and barefoot to see he needed deliverance. Now, you might be looking at this text and you're still just wondering, like, how in the world did David go from overwhelmed, right? His enemies are on the doorstep, right? To fearless. It's like the old uh, Superman cartoon. If you've ever seen the intro to it, like faster, uh, faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Like how is David able to just leap over this wall of insurmountable anxiety? Like if I had one person coming after my life, I would not be sleeping. I just would not be sleeping. Right, how is he able to overcome that, leap over this wall, and then sleep like a baby? Here's our next application. Don't simply say your nightly prayers. Meet God in confident communion. Okay, I, think that, I think this might be a, a difficult one for us. Meet God in confident communion. In 1657, John Owen wrote the following. Many dark and disturbing thoughts are apt to arise in our lives. Few can carry up their hearts and minds by faith in order to rest their souls in the love of the Father. They live below it in the troublesome region of hopes and fears, storms and clouds. But all here is serene and quiet. Where, where is this quiet and serene place of rest for John Owen? He says this, for the love of the Father is the only rest of the soul. So Christian, if, if fearlessness in the midst of overwhelming anxiety is just a pipe dream for you and, and you live life overburdened and fearful, then the, then the Bible has a hard but good corrective for you. I, I want you to consider that God's word is telling us that, that maybe we don't understand prayer the way that we ought to understand prayer. Prayer for David and the other psalmists was actual communion with God. He was speaking to God, the creator of heaven and earth, who holds all power, human or otherwise. And David had complete confidence in God. At the beginning of Psalm 3, David's enemies are, are rising up against him. They're surrounding him on all sides, right? But in spite of this, David has a double confidence. He has confident faith one, that God's shield surrounds him at all times and on all sides. And two, he has confident faith that God will arise and cause his enemies to fall. At the beginning of Psalm 3, David's enemies say there's no salvation left for him. David responds confidently at the end of this psalm, does he not? You don't know what you're talking about. Salvation belongs to the Lord, not you. David's faith in God's word made him fearless. And he, wasn't, he was not on some higher plane of existence, right? He was not a super Christian. Just read anything about his life and you'll see that very clearly. By faith, he communed with God and his confidence was restored. When David prayed to God, David met God in prayer. 
So Christian, when you pray, do you stay put until you are once again confident of God's love for you in Christ? Or do you check your nightly prayers off the list? When you pray, do you expect to meet with God? Or do you get distracted by all the other meetings that you have to attend in the day? David's confidence in God was restored in prayer. In prayer, he remembered God's promise of steadfast love. So likewise, when we, when we meet with God face-to-face in his word and through prayer, our confidence in our own selves, what? It dwindles and our God confidence grows. Have you, have you ever been in a situation where you were frightened? You're just frightened. But then just at the, at the right the right time, the right person stepped into that situation and they handled it. They cleared everything up and everything was fine. The the fear you faced just melted away into peace. When David cried out in simple trust, he knew that at the right time, in God's time, God's word of deliverance would come through and say to him, I'll handle this. I'll handle this. So Christian, when we pray with confidence, We pray knowing that God hears us. We pray knowing God loves us. And we have confidence. How do we have confidence that God hears us? Abram heard God. God like spoke directly to Abram. Like that doesn't happen to me. (laughs) David had the prophet Nathan and, and he had the Ark of the Covenant. They had those, but we have something better. At the right time, we know God sent the right man who entered into all the painful realities of our lives and said this, what? I'll handle this. And he did to the point of death. When when our confidence is in Christ, our fears do melt away. Do we still have a myriad of problems all around us? Yes. Do we still experience painful loss and grief? Yes. Are there still enemies of the gospel seeking our spiritual ruin? Maybe even coming after our own lives? Yes. But by faith, the the weight of these problems are, are outweighed and overnumbered by God's presence and his promise of love. Don't give glory to your problems. Give glory to God. Maturity in our prayer life means that our real problems that can really harm us are outweighed by the glory of our real God. What do we see in Scripture? If God is for us, who can be against us? And that's a a real question. Who can actually be against us if God is for us? What greater promise can we have than, than this? Nothing can separate us from what? The love of God in Christ Jesus our Savior. Martin Luther had a habit of, uh, he would go to his window in the evening and he would say this. He would say, God, is it my world or yours? Is it my church or yours? If they are your world and your church, please take care of them. I am tired. I'm going to bed. Good night, my God. For others, David was for God's people, seven and eight. David is overwhelmed, David is fearless, and David is for others. Arise, O Lord, you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. 
Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Asking the Lord to arise is asking him to act on one's behalf to get involved. Hey, you, might, you might see that and you're like, oh, man, I was, real, I was a little caught off guard by the hey, breaking the teeth of the wicked thing, right? And, uh, but, but no, really, if, any, if David's going to be brash at all, he would be brash in this. Arise, O Lord. God, move on my behalf. I'm asking you. Notice how, notice how David switches tenses here. He asks God to get involved, but then he speaks like God already has gotten involved, doesn't he? He says, for you break the teeth of the wicked. Uh, this is a, a verb tense called a, a perfect of confidence. Uh, scholars have also referred to it as a prophetic perfect. They say this, in other words, David is so confident of the outcome that he writes it as if it had already happened. Now, there, there are Psalms uh, which, refer to, which we refer to as the imprecatory Psalms. So it's where uh, the psalmist asks God to bring down destruction on his enemies, okay? And, and that's not this Psalm. That's, a, that's another topic for another day. I'll get, I'll get there, you know, if you hang with us long enough, right? Um, David's statement here is not an imprecatory statement. Why, why do I say that? Well, in the Bible and in other ancient literature, striking someone on the cheek, it meant that you were wanting the person to be disgraced, to be dishonored. You wanted them to shut up. David trusts that God will put his foes in their place. This is, this is a faith statement. It's not a fight statement. No, he's saying, dismantle their plans, God. Take the teeth out of their evil plots. This whole psalm, David has asked for what? Deliverance from his enemies, not death to his enemies. David's enemies are surrounding him like a pride of lions surrounding their prey. So before they can clench their teeth down on David, what is he saying? He's wanting God to break their jaws. Get them away from me. You might say, I, I don't know. It seems like, it seems like God's being violent in this, in this passage. David wants God to be violent. Um, well, th there's two reasons why I don't, I don't think that's the case, what, on top of what I've already mentioned, right? One is, one reason is that David loves his main opponent. David loves his main foe. Who is it? It's Absalom, his son. He loves Absalom. Absalom is not just his son, it's also his favorite son. All right, David pleads with his men in 2 Samuel, pleads with them to not kill Absalom. He just wants him to be captured. He wants his teeth removed. Two, David concludes this psalm by asking God for what? He asks God for blessing. Think about it. May your blessing be on your people. This is the very people that are coming after David to try to take David's own life, okay? David, under extreme duress, prays with intensity. David is not asking for his enemies to be killed, but to be dismantled. And I think some of us could use a, a good dose of Psalm 3-7 infused into our prayer life. And, and maybe it's different than you would, than you would first think, right? Are, are you easily angered? What should you ask God to do? Ask God to break the teeth of your sinful anger before you head down the path of who? Absalom. Is vengeance yours or God's? Leave it to God. Are you worried? Pray in full confidence for God to break the overwhelming jaws of worry pressing down on you. Pray with your Bible open until you trust more in God's overwhelming presence then you worry about the many problems of life. Are you not angry enough? 
Ask, ask God to, to break the teeth of the pervasive cultural lie that God is not real or that God is not clear in his word. We're often just not angry about the right things. We can be angry. We should just be angry like God's angry. Are you not anxious about the right things? Right? Pray for Christian missionaries who daily risk their necks. Pray for that Satan's work would be struck down. Pray that these missionaries would have favor with, with all the people they interact with, with governing officials who hate the gospel of Jesus, who might get them killed. Pray for imprisoned Christians who might die at the hands of their captors, that they would persevere faithfully to the end, that the Lord would bless the murderous and turn them into missionaries, just as Jesus taught us. What did Jesus say? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. We are to bring God's words of life to others, even, even sworn enemies. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We are called to bless God's people and for those who have yet to become God's people. The, the songwriter Isaac Watts richly ties Psalm 3 together in song form. This is a part of the song. He says this, Arise, O Lord, fulfill thy grace, while I thy glory sing. My God has broke the serpent's teeth, and death has lost its sting. Salvation to the Lord belongs, his arm alone can save. Blessings attend thy people here, and reach beyond the grave. Let's pray. Father, you know, <clears throat> you know that we can never live up to the expectations of your good law. In Psalm 3, you have met us in the fallen reality of our lives. You sent your son who met all the expectations set before him. We trust in him. We grieve our sin and we rejoice in Christ. Christ, our shield, Christ, our glory, the savior who lifts us up. In the morning, Psalm 3 tells us that you have sustained our lives through the night. In the evening, your word in Psalm 4 tells us that you alone keep us as we sleep. In the morning, Psalm 5 tells us that we hear your voice when we, when we wake. In the evening, Psalm 6 tells us that you hear us as we cry ourselves to sleep. In the morning, Psalm 7 tells us that you are the one who has the final say on sin. You are indignant against it from sunup to sundown. And at night, Psalm 8 points us to the heavens, to you, the creator of the moon and the stars, and that you care for us. Cause us to tremble with fear and with joy at the weight of your glory. All thanks and praise to, to you for your son's work. Your son's work was so decisive. Your word talks about our final glorification as if it had already happened. Hebrews says it like this, that you have brought us to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, into innumerable angels and festal gathering. Why the, why the confidence? Because we have been brought to Jesus himself, the mediator of a new covenant. Your new covenant is where all perfect expectations and reality meet and embrace. You have kept your promises from Adam to Abram to David and now to us. In Christ alone, you have broken sin's strength and Satan's power. Lord, you are the owner and author of salvation, and you bless your people with it. So we pray and we will sing with confidence. Arise, O Lord, fulfill your grace while we your glory sing. My God, you broke the serpent's teeth and death has lost his sting.
Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.